Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. The Trifoliate Awards recognize culinary excellence in the American South with a series of dinners at Serenby honoring innovative local chefs. Today, we'll hear from Serenby executive chef Nick Boer and producer Darren Wonk about how these events will benefit this postage stamp of native soil, a project documenting the history and families of the Chattahoochee Hills community just south of Atlanta. First, how public art in Atlanta benefits our lives. Art on the Atlanta Beltline showcases the work of hundreds of visual artists, performers, and musicians along the Atlanta Beltline corridor, touching nearly 20 communities. Beltline Livestream now returns for its second year. A series of performance works and talks by artists in the 2020-2021 exhibition. Miranda Kyle is the Arts and Culture Program Manager for Art on the Atlanta Beltline. She joins us now via Zoom with one of the featured artists, Jessica Caldas. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us here. Thanks for having us, Lois. Glad to have you here. How will this year's Beltline live stream differ from last year? Well, I think one of the unique things to point out is that Beltline live stream was really born out of this desire to continually support performance musicians and other artists who traditionally work in venues during COVID because a lot of those artists lost those venues and those gigs. And thankfully, because we are a public art platform, we were able to still provide them space to perform and a platform like Zoom or Instagram or Facebook in which to share those performances that they created on the corridor. So that manifested while we were all in the the throes of COVID last June 
And because we are still very much in recovery mode and the Atlanta Beltline is still very conscious of protecting our using population and our artist population, we decided to continue it again this season and sort of expand the inclusion of who all could be a Beltline live stream performer from our cadre of Art on the Atlanta Beltline artists this year. So we wanted to include and continue to include not just the performances and the, the musicians, but also our artists in residence. And Jessica is one of the participants from our residency program. She is the season's artist in residence. And since performance is such a big part of her work anyway, this felt like a really good fit. Will viewers only be able to see digitally or will some of them be on view along the belt line? For Beltline Livestream writ large, some of the work does exist physically on the corridor, but most of the work was created on the corridor and then folks will access that content and that creation digitally. I see. Jessica, will you describe your sculpture? Absolutely. So the Endeavor is a large figurative soft sculpture at her full length. I think she was about 85 feet in length. And then the width is kind of variable depending on how she's positioned. And so she's she's big. She's also been dyed sort of this fuchsia red color. And she's made from recycled military parachutes that I hand dyed and then sewed together. Um, and she's stuffed full of this polyfiber fill. So she's like the biggest, giant, most soft pillow you've ever thrown your body on. <laughs> <laughs> and do people do that? Well, yes. So she was installed in, in mid-May and she was installed for one week. And I really did really hope that people would engage with her and rest on her and lie with her at her resting site, which was just next to the old Fourth Ward Skate Park on that hill overlooking that nice field right there. But unfortunately, the problem is that People were like so enthusiastic about their play with her that I'm guessing overnight folks were jumping into her a little bit too much and maybe being too aggressive. And so they were basically tearing her open overnight. And so each morning I ended up having to come back and repair her and sew her back up. And it was, it was a little bit excessive. So she ended up being removed from the site after five days because they kept pulling her apart and then kind of spilling her stuffing all over the belt line, which I didn't want either. And so we ended up having to remove her from the site because while I did want people to be able to play on her and rest on her, the jumping was a little bit too aggressive. Yeah. So how has this work evolved? Well, so she was supposed to be on that site for about 10 weeks. And I knew that she would succumb to some damage and the elements and probably some vandalism over that time. So I had prepared for that kind of repair over time. But the speed and, and degree to which she was destroyed was a little, I was a little alarming and something that we had not really prepared for. So once we removed her, I had to kind of reassess what was going to happen next with the project. Um, originally, there were going to be three performances in June where I essentially birthed her children because she had within her three smaller sculptures, soft sculptures that were her children. 
and the performances were going to sort of be these birthing ceremonies and processions along the belt line. Instead, I'm still doing the performances, the three performances, but instead they've become like a processional funeral and celebration of the Endeavor's life and all the things that she ended up representing both intentionally as I began, but also through the development and the sort of violence and the changes that occurred as a result of what happened. What does the Endeavor represent in the way she is laid out on the ground? I really wanted and still kind of believe that she is very much a monument to care and community and sort of the things, the kind of labor that is required to really commit to those ideas. So being able to rest either alone or with others, being able to care for others and spend time working to aid others or take care, but also sort of coming together in different ways and working together towards different solutions or things that are important for us as a community. Um, Those are all the kinds of things I was thinking about when I was creating her. 85 feet long. May I ask her weight? If my math is right, she, when she was fully stuffed, she would have weighed about 675 pounds. Wow. (laughs) How was she moved? So when she was originally installed, we actually had a community of friends and family. And frankly, some people I didn't even know that well, but that responded to my call for volunteers. And we did this sort of installation procession where we carried her skin with her children already inside to the site. And then we also then transported her her stuffing there and stuffed her on site. So it became a kind of performance in of itself, just kind of getting her there, right? And I had about, I think it was only between 10 and 15 people. I actually can't remember right now. But we were all working. We started about 5.30 at the Beltline offices and carried her down the Beltline. We were all dressed in red. I sort of call my volunteers doulas because I think about the history of doula work, both in death and birth, as something that's very important to the project as well, thinking about life as a cycle that involves all of these different aspects, right? We all wore red and walked together and carried the skin. And then we spent about five hours stuffing her on site and sealing her up. On June 26th, Nedra Deadweiler, the Atlanta Belt Lines 2020-21 Scholar-in-Residence, will host an event on historic preservation. Can you tell us more about what she'll present? Yeah, absolutely. For anyone who's been around Atlanta for you know a few years, I'm sure you've heard the name Nedra Debweiler. She is a renowned activist, particularly on the west and southwest sides of Atlanta, dealing with issues of historical preservation as activism is really her big sort of thesis for her scholarly work with us this year. And what she'll be looking at with this pop-up activation is inviting legacy and long-term residents from around the Beltline's neighborhoods to engage in sort of a show and tell of sorts to bring an item that is meaningful to them or their family. It could be a quilt. It could be an heirloom piece of crockware. It could be a photograph. It could be a pair of shoes that has 
meaning for them and their family. And she's invited conservators from different perspectives and points of expertise around the city to come and be in discussion with those legacy residents and their heirloom items to talk about how preserving these pieces of their, and essentially their neighborhoods, history is a part of activism and advocating for history, particularly Black history in Atlanta. And so I think it'll be a really fantastic way for us to celebrate what makes us distinctly Atlanta. And we're really excited to see what that engagement unfolds. Will those be videotaped? Yes. And so those will be videotaped. More than likely, there will be an element that'll be live streamed. We are still working on all of the details, but now that we're gently reopening along the corridor, we do encourage some folks to attend that pop-up. Of course, please wear a mask, social distance, you know, be safe, protect yourselves and the others around you, but it will be a part of the Beltline live stream event, yes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, talking with Miranda Kyle, who is the Arts and Culture Program Manager for Art on the Atlanta Beltline, and artist Jessica Caldas, one of the featured artists in Beltline Livestream. There will be two movement pieces, one by Liquid Sky and another by Full Radius Dance. Liquid Sky incorporates Cirque Entertainment, Aerial Arts, and Fire Performances. I read they'll offer a blend of live installations and virtual streaming. How will that be demonstrated? So with our performance artists, they have been in a very interesting position this year because we were essentially shut down and permitting wasn't happening in parks or anything like that. The performance artists were allowed to kind of go a little bit rogue and occupy spaces they normally wouldn't be able to either because of volume of foot traffic or just it's very difficult to permit. So like in the instances of full radius dances work, they took over the historic Fourth Ward Park skate park <laughs> and were able to do some of the most daring dance maneuvering I have seen, particularly since some of their dancers utilize wheelchairs in order to ambulate. And I found myself really holding my breath quite a bit as I was watching the videos of them dancing in the bowls and in around the skate park. And that video and their artist talk happened at the beginning of the month and are available on our website and on our social media channels. And then our discussion with Liquid Sky in a few weeks will be happening virtually. We'll be screening the videos, much like we did with Full Radius, of the work that they also created on the corridor occupying meadows and the trail itself and adjacent architectural structures and infrastructure of the corridor. And they've created these sort of story visual vignettes and we'll be screening those videos of their performances that happened on the corridor and talking to them about it afterwards. My goodness. With the full radius performance. Their work is called Restructure. Is there a narrative for that dance? From what, you know, Douglas and the company of Full Radius really talked about was Restructure was born out of what they overcame as a dance company 
in the midst of COVID, you know, they began a lot of their choreo and photography in isolation, which is very odd for dancers. Dance is such a collaborative contact performance medium that this isolation work and then finally being able to come back together was a rethinking of their medium. And you can really see how that translates through the course of the work in the, in the film that they ended up producing. And it's really powerful to see these dancers who already are overcoming obstacles of how dance is perceived as an able-bodied effort and they completely fly in the face of that notion with absolutely brilliant results. Miranda, can you tell us about the muralists from Beltline Walls and what they will present? So uh, Beltline Walls Volume 3, and that video is up for folks to view, but we posed a really big challenge to our muralists this past year with ongoing development around the corridor, the warehouse spaces that earlier iterations of art on the Atlanta Beltline often used for our mural projects have slowly, you know, they've been developed, they've been turned into, you know, other forms of property that we don't really have access to anymore to create the mural work. So we've turned to the tunnels and that very essential architecture of the railroad corridor, right? Our bridges and our tunnels. And we've challenged our muralists now for the last couple of years in painting in these spaces. And this year, probably more so than most, we gave each of our muralists a full bridge to tackle. Um, It was a huge challenge and these incredibly brilliant artists really rose to the occasion. And we have some really spectacular artwork along the sort of hero bridges, like the big bridges on the East Side Trail. Can you describe some? Oh, certainly. Brandon Sadler took over North Avenue and continued this narrative work he's been building on the Beltline for probably the last six years and put it all together with this mythical character that he created, Abia. And it's told in a comic book style. So each section of the bridge looks like a giant comic panel. And this is as you're driving down North Avenue, you can see it you either coming or going. Hence, took over Virginia Avenue. He has been painting on that bridge longer than the Beltline has been there. You know, back in his graffiti artist days, he often worked in that space. And so uh, we brought him back. He took over the entirety of the bridge and this really beautiful abstract color field work that is reflective of his studio practice. And marching on down the East Side Trail headed south, you'll see Genevieve Reed's beautiful work on North Highland Avenue, where she draws from the mask traditions of various indigenous peoples all across the world to speak to the unity of how we put ourselves in public spaces. And it the content of that work seems very timely, especially for the era that we live in. And I think one of the pieces that just was a resounding triumph of the season was Lisette's, also known as uh, Art Addict, her piece on the Edgewood Bridge, Somos Boracanos, which is just this spectacular tribute 
to indigeneity of the Taino people of uh, the islands, particularly Puerto Rico, and to the power and beauty of the immigrant communities that find themselves home here in Atlanta and celebrating these diverse and incredible voices and paying homage to our roots particularly the indigenous history of these spaces, which anybody who follows me on social media knows is very near and dear to my heart. It feels like in the middle of how heavy this past year is, these murals really came through as a beacon of hope. Miranda Kyle, Arts and Culture Program Manager for the Atlanta Beltline, and artist Jessica Caldas. Beltline live stream events run through June, and you can learn more about them at wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, honoring chefs and benefiting community with the Trifoliate Awards. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The Trifoliate Awards have been created as an ongoing annual series to honor culinary excellence in the American South. The first time annual awards are meant to celebrate and give a platform to the leading voices who have emerged during the challenging time of the pandemic. Darren Wong is producer of the Trifoliate Awards, along with John Kessler. Darren joins us now via Zoom with Chef Nicolas Bourg, the executive chef and vice president of food and beverage at Serenby. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here, Lois, and great to hear your voice again. Lovely to be with you both, and this is such an impressive award and production. First off, the name of the award series, the Trifoliate Awards, what's the story behind its name? Well, we came up with the uh, the idea of the awards one night sitting at the farmhouse. We thought with all of the bad news that was coming down, this is last fall, this is in November, that we really needed to uh, start doing something positive, thinking about celebrating the things that we loved in the world that were just kind of hanging on by a thread at that point. Thus, we started thinking about these culinary awards. And John Kessler was there, and Steve Nigren was there, and uh, some other folks from Serenby, and Chef Nick was there. So we came up with that idea, and then the idea of what to name it started coming up. And uh, John Kessler had just told us the story, this adventure that he and Nick had gone on earlier that day. Chef Nick can, can give you more details on that. 
<laughs> oh, please do elaborate. John is such a wonderful character. So he was here in Atlanta? He was an artist in residence uh, here at Serenby. And he didn't call. He didn't <laughs> write. He really was kind of sequestered here, uh, just focused on what he was doing. And I, you know, I found out that he was around. I owned a restaurant that was called Iris in Atlanta. It was a very special mm. uh, kind of place. And actually, when we closed, it was it was really one of the saddest things ever. John came and wrote a story about the actual closing. And very rare to have a story written about a closing of a restaurant. Usually, it's kind of just a silent death. I thought of John as, you know, the food critic and somebody I feared <laughs> pretty much for a long time. And then, you know, I realized he'd been out of the dining critic business for a long time. So I thought, hey, why don't we hang out and spend some time together? And um, John was so cool about it. He invited me over to the house where he was staying here, had oysters waiting, and we had decided we were going to make some nochino, which is a liqueur that's made with black walnuts that grow here uh, wild. Mm. That's currently sitting on top of my refrigerator right now. Hopefully it doesn't explode anytime <laughs> soon. Um, so John said, hey, let's go for a walk. And he had found these rare, I'd say, I'd never seen them before. And I've walked these woods many times. These trifoliate uh, citrus that grows here wild. Oh. So John said, let's go find them. I think I know where they are. It was kind of late in the day. And I feel terrible to say this, but before he actually found them again, I abandoned him to go home. because Aww. My daughter was eight at the time and she was begging for me to come home. So I said, John, good luck. It's pretty hard to get too lost here at Ceremony. Just kind of follow the trails. He was so cool about it, though. <laughs> but he, you know, he actually did locate those and he harvested some of them and he sent me pictures via text. How would you describe, obviously, they have three leaves with the name trifoliate. You know, John and I talked about it, and he described them to me. We didn't know what they were at that time. Do they look like lemons or oranges? They look a lot like yuzu, which is a Japanese citrus. Oh. And that was my best guess, because we had tried Tony and the Seacrest and I. He was one of the original chefs out here back in, geez, 2006. Tony had grown some yuzu plants here. I see. Yeah, and we threw them out in the woods at one time, at one point because they all died. And we thought maybe that's where they came from. But apparently John discovered something that's indigenous to here. And, you know, John is a really crafty guy. <laughs> <laughs> he managed to figure out something to do with them, along with the black walnuts, of course. It's a great story. So the, the oranges are slightly fuzzy. They're actually... Technically, they're not indigenous or now invasive at this point. Oh, well, no, no, no. Okay, you can edit that part out. <laughs> but uh, they used to be planted as a hedge because there's like a three-inch spike attached to the uh, to the plant. You would not go through that hedge if you encountered it. Well, that even, goes even further to say how crafty John is actually. Yeah, they're bitter as heck. Yeah. He made a, a marmalade, and we're, we're actually hoping to use some of that marmalade to make a, uh, a trifoliate old-fashioned as an opening oh, oh. drink during the dinners. Oh, my. Well, what we won't be using is the black walnut liqueur because it's... <laughs> I tasted some of it yesterday. It's like tastes like Jägermeister, but way, way worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a lovely story, Nick, that your friendship with John began with his eulogy for your restaurant and continues through your great success as executive chef at Serenby. It's kind of like the icing on the cake for me. So he's a really, he's a tremendous guy. I actually texted with him today. We're having lunch on Wednesday. Would you give him my best? We became 
Well, we became friends not long before his wife was offered that amazing job in the medical school at the University of Chicago. And I just felt bad that we were kind of cut short that way. But he's an extraordinary guy, fascinating chef in his own right, and such a fine writer. How did you work with the food writers, judges in the selection process of the honorees? What were you looking for? Well, we started talking about uh, Gunter Seeger, who has just returned to Atlanta after a long stint up in Manhattan. And, you know, in so many ways, he set the standard for what we're doing in a lot of Atlanta's food culture these days. And Chef Nick had worked with him. So the idea of having him as kind of the the foundational award winner to say this is the kind of work that we want to raise up and show, we started kind of looking at the really rich and wonderful food culture all through Atlanta, much more rising names and the idea of who we could both be honored to include, but also who having their name on this award might help in their career. There's a couple of names in food journalism in Atlanta that just come to mind automatically. And Guy Figueroa over at the AJC and Christian Lauterbach, who's the doyen of such things at uh, Atlanta Magazine. And of course, having John there seems the list of royalty for food journalists in, in Atlanta. So everyone seemed pretty excited to do it, I think. Our initial need was to, for us to recognize people that have emerging voices in food you know, giving some of the younger, I'm the old guy now, it's pretty scary, but <laughs> it's kind of nice too. So what we really wanted to do was kind of give the spotlight to people who are coming up and people who have serious chops, no pun intended, in the cooking uh, world. It was a pretty unanimous kind of situation. We chose some people who are just excellent chefs, great citizens, strong voices, and, you know, very local, local heroes, but people who definitely are going to have some kind of national voice eventually. And some of them already do. You know, we have David Sweeney. That guy is a serious, serious cook. I, th- I think I'd have to really find it hard to find anybody who can cook vegetables the way he does. It's a very diverse group of people, and it was very intentional. Yet natural. I mean, we all agreed that they were excellent choices for the award and for the dinners that we're going to be doing. I'm very personally very excited. I'm glad to not be on the spotlight too much. I've kind of resigned myself to being kind of behind the scenes anyway. So your role assisting each of the chefs during their award dinners is behind the scenes, as you say. I mean, what does that mean in the kitchen? They're sous chef, basically. And it's their dinner. It's their time to shine. Probably going to have a laundry list of specialty items that I'm going to source for them. I have already great sources for everything, so I'm, and that's going to be pretty easy. But this is their time to shine. It's their award, and um, I want them to be able to feel like the dinner is really about them. It's not about me. I'm just here to make sure that they feel comfortable, supported, and that they have an, an excellent set of hands next to them. Well, that sounds very deferring of you, and I know there are some notorious stories about chefs not being deferring in any way. So that's quite a tribute. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes talking with producer Darren Wong and chef Nick Boer about the first time annual Trifoliate Awards for Culinary Excellence. Can you talk about the dinner's a bit more. What will each of the evening's events entail? 
So we've brought on an artistic director, uh, Rachel Garceau, who's going to be planning performances or events around the dinners. And we've also brought on Kristen Genet, another artist who's designing the experience at the meals. And ideally, most of them are going to be happening outdoors, outside the farmhouse, in the courtyard area there. There'll be small dinners, about uh, 35 to 40 people for each of the meals. And um, the idea is that it's really a showcase for these chefs to show off and really have full freedom to do as they, they want for these meals. Darren, you had mentioned that, you know, a lot of chefs are shying away from doing these big events, you know, these food taste of this and taste of that, because especially now there's a big expense involved and that we were going to relieve that financial burden from them to make them really be able to do whatever they want and not have to worry about the, the bill coming in later. Yeah, that's right. So there's a stipend for the chefs and there's a budget for materials so that they can think big and, and put together a nice meal and not worry about the cost of this or that or a piece of meat or, or whatever to, to make sure that they can express themselves without those kind of limitations, within reason, of course. <laughs> the Trifoliate Award dinners will help fund this postage stamp of native soil. Yes. What is that project and who's involved in making it come to life? That's the project that I'm kind of heading up uh, along with the dinners. And this postage stamp of native soil, the title comes from a uh, story about William Faulkner and him sitting at a bar in New Orleans with fellow writer Sherwood Anderson. And it's very early in uh, Faulkner's career. And he had published two novels that had not done well. And Sherwood Anderson turned to uh, William Faulkner and said, you need to go home and focus on your postage stamp of native soil. And Faulkner went home and wrote The Sound and the Fury. (laughs) And that idea that you could focus on, on a place and delve deep into its history and tell a story and tell many stories, that was the basis of Faulkner's career. So that same idea drove me as a novelist. I wrote a historical novel about my hometown of Townline, New York. I know it well. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, not the town, but the novel. Yeah. So one day, Steve Nigren, who was the founder of Serenby, took me out for a hike in the woods around Serenby, the same woods literally that John got lost in. And he started showing me some of the historical markers there, these ancient Indian carvings and terraced land from the 19th century and everything. And I got the exact same spark, the same idea from him and him telling those stories as I had about my own hometown when I started exploring that history. We started talking about documenting the history, talking to the people that knew it and, and recording it. That conversation with Steve started driving me to do this history. And when we started a month or two later, I was, I was trying to figure out how to make that happen. And a month or two later, this, the idea of these dinners came around. And uh, I said, well, let's put them together. You know, we can fund one with the other. Mm-hmm. So the documentary will look at the history and families of the Chattahoochee Hills community for those unfamiliar with the area. Would you describe where it's located? Yeah, so Chattahoochee Hills is about 20, 25 miles south of the Atlanta airport. It's, it's beautiful farm country, uh, cows and, and horse country abound. And it's odd in that it's still 
kind of metro Atlanta, but it is uniquely rural for being that close in. And it's, in fact, a few years ago, through a lot of interesting legislative work, it, it incorporated as a city in, a, in name, but it is very much just beautiful rural Georgia. A lot of the families have stayed. Serenby is located in the middle of that. The oral history will be about kind of everything that isn't Serenby. So you're honoring the community of which Serenby is part. Yeah. Nick, you touched upon diversity of the chefs. How did that factor into those you wanted to award and highlight at the dinners? It was very important to us that it wasn't just the usual lineup of people. Chefs is a very tight-knit community. I guess we all kind of see each other as brethren in most cases. Atlanta has a particularly close group of chefs. I think we all respect each other and we all try to look out for one another. But it was really more than an individual decision. I think it was just a kind of a groupthink situation. I know for me, I just wanted it to be as good a cross-section of the talent as possible. One person in particular that I think so highly of, and she's, you know, very young, up and coming, Claudia Martinez, her name is, she's a pastry chef. That was very important for me to see her shine in this because just for the effort that she's made. I mean, if you look at her work, she is so unbelievably talented and dedicated. And, you know, I've been 26 years in the kitchen. It is a very hard, it's a hard road, you know? So the little things like that are so big. I loved seeing the different Southern fusion that many of the chefs incorporate into their menus and food selections, such as Brian So's Korean Southern Fusion and Parnas Savang's Thai food with Southern ingredients. How have such chefs changed the way people view food? You know, things can be incorporated into all different type of cuisines, cultures. I favor French cuisine myself, but I have to say I've been cooking a lot of collard greens since I've been back at Serbia. A la Française. A la Française, with lots of bacon. <laughs> <laughs> and butter, of course. Well, it really is a very ambitious project you've embarked upon, Nick. You competed in season 13 of the Food Network's Beat Bobby Flay with a unique twist on the fritter. For listeners who didn't watch that episode. What was your unique twist? Well, it was basically a twist on a French dish that I grew up eating, which is brandade de morue, which is like a salt cod whipped with potatoes and garlic. And uh, I thought that rather than have it as a spread or something to dip, I thought it would be nice to have this kind of a fritter. I do a crab fritter. That's probably one of my biggest items here mm -hmm. at the farmhouse. And I thought, you know, to, rather than just do something with crab, I thought I could throw a little wrench into his works. And, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, he's a very good competitor. And I'm, as my wife put it, this is the last time you're doing this. Oh, <laughs> It was a good time. You know, I flew, my goodness, I flew from California to New York City and started cooking at five in the morning, New York time. So I thought I did okay. You did very well indeed. And how can you go wrong with potatoes and butter and a fritter? <laughs> Darren Wong, chef Nick Boer, thank you again so very much. Thank you. Honored to talk to you. Thank you for having us, Lois. Trifoliate Awards producer Darren Wong and Chef Nick Boer, the executive chef and VP of food and beverage at Serenby. 
The first event is September 19th and honor Chef Gunter Sager. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. For Pride Month, we're going to listen back to an interview with former Air Force Captain Mark Gibson about his memoir, Served in Silence. The book chronicles his 20 years in the military as a gay man during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Mark Gibson in 2019 about his journey from serving our country in silence to openly addressing his sexuality. She began with asking about the title of the book. It came to me in my first deployment to Afghanistan. We had been under attack at the base camp, and the next day we were deployed to go out and check the surrounding villages. And the, the thought came upon me as I saw the, the carnage from the night before that here I was serving in, in, in protecting a country that uh, for more rights than I had in my own country. And I felt like I was serving in silence. What did it feel like the day that you looked up at the TV screen and you saw that Bill Clinton had signed into law the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy? What was your first reaction? Boy, I remember it well. I was uh, sitting at a keyboard for data entry at the Springfield uh, Military Entrance Processing Station, and I just felt a complete calm come over my body. My, my shoulders relaxed, and I just kind of sunk in to the chair, and I was just taking it all in. So you were calm because initially they didn't allow anybody that was homosexual to be in the military. And so this was one step of being like, they can be in the military, just don't talk about it. Correct. Right. And so if somebody was openly gay, were they discharged? They were. Right. And and little did I know at the time, um, all it, it was a false sense of calm because the don't ask, don't tell policy would soon to prove to be such a demoralizing and dehumanizing policy. So if they saw you out of the base openly with a same-sex partner, could that warrant them discharging you? It could definitely warrant an inquiry. I noticed that the first half of your book is all about your childhood and growing up in a household where everyone just kind of swept the issues under the rug, you know, didn't really deal with any issues, just don't talk about what's uncomfortable. With those coping mechanisms that you learned as a child, how did that influence the way that you talked about issues in your adult life? Growing up, emotional intelligence wasn't a buzzword or an attribute that you would even consider in the 60s and 70s and and growing up. And looking back now and after writing a memoir, I see how vitally important it is to establish that uh, emotional intelligence and, and grow that to be very healthy to be able to have successful relationships in the future. So I, I kind of um, look at that as a roadmap as to what not to do and how you have full, fulfilling and enriching relationships. Patti LaBelle's music was huge in your life, getting you through a lot of challenges, both in your childhood and adult life. 
And when you were about to go off to boot camp, you made a mixtape for your mom with the song There's a Winner in You. Can you talk a little bit about LaBelle's music and how that's helped you get through some difficult times in your life? Yes, absolutely. Um, I look at uh, my relationship with uh, Patti LaBelle and her music. There's another song, um, in addition to There's a Winner in You, there is uh, Don't Block the Blessings, and When You've Been Blessed, It Feels Like Heaven. And I I really believe that it was the lighthouse in in a, a tumultuous sea of emotions at times. And um, not very typical for a, a white kid from upstate New York to latch on to R&B um, great like Patti LaBelle. But it just seemed to be the landscape of my soundtrack for my life starting very early at age 17. I will be your What did you want your mom to take away from those songs that you put on a mixtape? Because I know that she was going through a lot in her life right then. Yeah, I think that um, when you go back and listen to the the lyrics, it is it, it's basically being a friend, but also being a sound sounding board to help somebody through a difficult time. To even when you can't believe that there is a winner in you, if there is somebody that is on the sidelines that's cheering you on to believe that there's a winner in you, then it could help you through the some difficult times. I know that you wrote about coming out to your mom when you were married to a woman. What was her initial reaction? I think that what brought us to the intersection of the conversation was a genuine concern. She was recognizing um, that I was slipping into a very dark and very sad moment in, in time in my life. And she basically was trying to ask probing questions and, you know, why are you unhappy? Why are you um, dissatisfied or, you know, what is wrong? And, and then we just came upon the, the comment where it just got quiet. And finally, she just came right out and, and asked me, are you having a hard time dealing with your sexuality? And did she go on and tell the rest of the family or was that kind of the secret that was kept between you two? No, no, that was part of, um, we, we, we did a really good job at perfecting the don't ask, don't tell policy before it was ever enacted into a law. So that was, once again, another layer to the secrets that would be kept. How did you approach conversations in the military when it was brought up about your personal life? You know, a lot of people have asked me about um, living um, maybe a double standard in the in the military, and that is not how I viewed it. I, I viewed it as um, I took the oath of office uh, very seriously, and uh, I didn't feel gay or straight or bisexual. Um, I didn't feel that sexual orientation was appropriate at any level while in uniform. You know, especially as an officer, um, there were just certain things. I, I would never want to consume a, a, an alcoholic beverage while I was in uniform. I didn't want to dis- disrespect the uniform. And so while in the military, it was, it was actually pretty easy for me to keep it very compartmentalized. What drew you to the military? I grew up in a, a really small town in upstate New York in the village of Ballston Spa, 
And I think like a lot of young people in the time, during the times, there weren't a lot of options. If you weren't on a track to go to college, then you were on track to find a, a job on the local economy. And um, I saw that the military was my ticket out. It was my ticket out, and you know I, I really believed in uh, the military slogans at the time: "Be all you can be" and "Aim high." And um, I really felt that, um, looking back now, as a young person with unharnessed uh, energy and maybe a penchant for mischief, this would be a great uh, structure for uh, this young person. And uh, so initially I just decided to join the Air Force. It was primarily because I didn't really like camping, and so the Army was out. Not a great swimmer, so the Navy was out. Um, And I just really liked the uniform. I know that you lived off base wherever you were at. Can you talk about living that double life of why you live so far from home base? I did it intentionally to um, try to establish a a resemblance of a normal life, at least when I was off duty. And in order to do that, I didn't want to live in the same community and because I didn't really feel like I would be able to let my hair down, so to speak. So I often chose to live either in the next city over, at great distance um, away from the base, which was um, taxing because it added to the commute to the long 12, 14-hour days. Another difficulty that you talked about on top of serving in silence was also your struggle with PTSD. This was back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Were they really talking about PTSD or was there really a program to help people transition that who were deployed and coming back to America? It was um, a lot of things in the military are checklist driven. So it's a box checker. And I think that it was on the surface where the medical community was identifying that there may be a problem. My example, when I returned home the first time, I did a great job in making sure that everybody else got to see the doc and ask questions um, or the chaplain or counselors. And it never dawned on me, it never occurred to me that I should be doing the same thing. Can you talk about the instance in Target when you had your first experience with PTSD? You know, even you mentioning it, it just is a flood of memories that comes back to, um, I remember the the day, I remember what I was wearing, and it, it was pretty normal. I was grabbing my caramel mochiato from Starbucks at the front of the counter, and then everything just started to uh, cave in and, and crash where the tunnel vision and the lights and the sounds and it was like a cacophony in my mind that I just had to get out of the, the store. Did you realize that you were experiencing PTSD in that moment? No, I, I had no idea. With the tightness of my chest and the breathing and the sweating, and I didn't know. I, I had no idea. I didn't know if it was a heart attack. I, I just knew that something was overtaking my body, and I had to get out of the, the tunnel vision of the 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 lights and all of the sounds from the cash registers. And this was after you had been deployed twice? Correct, yes. 
two times, two, two times deployed to uh, Afghanistan at Bagram Airfield in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. I highlighted the part in the book on page 232 that said, I did not want to be buried in soil of a country that I would have died for, but did not allow me to live authentically. And that really just spoke to me. It just really woke me up after I read that. How did you come to that decision? Because it came to the, the realization of, um, with the title of the book, Served in Silence, that I was not permitted and, nor allowed to bring my true self to the day. And therefore, I felt that it would be very disrespectful if I um, did allow myself to be buried in American soil. Unfortunately, it wasn't until after you had retired from the military was the ban lifted by President Barack Obama. And you have the quote in the book by him, and I was wondering if you could read that for us. We are not a nation that says, don't ask, don't tell. We are a nation that says, out of many, we are one. We are a nation that welcomes the service of every patriot. We are a nation that believes all men and women are created equal. Those are the ideals that generations have fought for. Those are the ideals we uphold today. Can you tell us about that day? It was a great day. You know, I just really felt complete. I felt like I did the day that I raised my hand when I was 17 years old and the pride and, and the joy that uh, being able to serve our country. And then that just made it uh, with the, uh, President Obama repealing the don't ask, don't tell policy. It just somehow was a way to mend some wounds. Former Air Force captain and author Mark Gibson in a 2019 conversation with City Lights producer Summer Evans, Gibson's book is Served in Silence. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll preview the upcoming Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus Summer Concert Yas Broadway. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. Kevin Rinker is City Lights engineer emeritus, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.